Hello and welcome to Freelancing for Journalists, the podcast that tells you everything you need to know about working for yourself. I'm Emma Wilkinson, a freelance journalist specialising in health and medicine. And I'm Lily Cantor, a freelance money, health and lifestyle journalist. For Series 5 of the podcast, we are collaborating with the Freelance Journalism Assembly. They're part of the European Journalism Centre and they offer a great set of resources for freelance journalists, um, including a series of reporting guides. Yeah, and all of their resources are free to access. So head over to journalismassembly.com to find out more. Yeah, so this series, we're going to be covering a range of topics that have been um, at the top of their agenda and that we have also been really keen to cover. And today we're going to be talking about crowdsourcing stories, what that actually means and how it works. But first of all, a quick catch up. So Emma, how's your week been? Um, generally, very good. Uh, in the interest of work-life balance, I did took a break on Monday morning to meet Ooh. up with a friend that I'd not seen uh, in forever. I'm trying to think, maybe even before COVID, that can't be right, can it? Um, and it felt really great. And we had a cup of tea and a catch-up in the garden, um, and it was lovely. But then I did spend the rest of the day in a bit of a panic trying to get everything done that was on my list. So I've not got this balance thing totally nailed yet. I'm a work in progress. Um, so how about you? I think you've been doing some very random things for articles that you've been writing. Yeah, as always, quite an eclectic mix. Uh, yeah, last week I went um, training with a dog, so running with a dog, um, uh, which is called Canny Cross or Carney Cross, Caney Cross. I'm not quite sure how you pronounce it. Um, yeah, for a running magazine, I'm doing an article about sort of how do you actually run properly with a dog. So I had my first attempt at that which was really good fun, but God, they go really fast. So you have to like keep up. Um, and then randomly, now I'm writing up boilers this week. Um, so yeah, just from one extreme to the other really. Um, but yeah, so is a life freelancer. quite an eclectic mix of stories. <laughs> um, right, well, we've got another meaty subject this week with lots to talk about. So I reckon we need to jump straight in. Um, so yeah, crowdsourcing in journalism. Now, don't worry if you've never heard of this or don't know exactly what it means. Um, I mean, crowdsourcing is when you sort of openly invite a group of people to help with a reporting task. So it could be through things like news gathering, collecting data, doing some analysis. They could be providing some IT expertise, trawling through information, or offering things like personal experiences or documents. And we'll sort of go through all of that today. Yeah, and there are quite a few publishers um, now using crowdsourcing routinely as part of their reporting. One example is ProPublica, um, who in a piece looking at why the US has the highest rate of deaths in pregnancy and childbirth in the developed world, collected 5,000 stories of maternal harm. Um, the Guardian's another publication who's used crowdsourcing a lot, and they used it to look through the MP expenses scandal a few years back. Um, and also a project to track the number of people killed by police and law enforcement agencies in the US. Yeah, so um, a guide to crowdsourcing from the Tao Centre for Digital Journalism set out sort of best practices, which we will put in the show notes. And that points to factors such as being clear about why and how you want to crowdsource for a story, uh, thinking carefully about verification, which is a really important point we're going to talk about in more detail today, and considering how you're going to communicate with your community that you're crowdsourcing from and why they should want to help you as well, I guess. 
Yeah, so for this episode, we've got two very knowledgeable guests. So rather than give our top tips on something that's not really our area of expertise, we're going to go straight over to them. Yeah, so absolutely. First, we have Charlotte Goddard, an open source investigator at Bellingcat. Hi, Charlotte. Um, Charlotte is an investigator and trainer for Bellingcat, an independent international collective of researchers, investigators, citizen journalists using open source and social media investigation to probe a wide variety of subjects. Uh, she's also working on starting up their volunteer community. Charlotte's experience with crowdsourced data includes a recent investigation into police violence at Black Lives Matter protests last year. Yes. Hi, we've... Hi Emma. Hi, Charlotte. Hi. Nice to be here. Great to have you here. And we've also got Eric Reedy. Eric is a freelance journalist and the migration editor at large for the New Human Humanitarian. He's reported extensively on migration in the Mediterranean, as well as on the humanitarian aid work and anti-migrant vigilante groups at the US-Mexico border and the effort to document crimes and atrocities in Syria's civil war. He was also involved in work to crowdsource answers to what happened to a ship with 243 passengers that disappeared without a trace in the Mediterranean. Known as the ghost boat story, crowdsourcing was used to search through the huge amount of data needed to search for clues. So hi, Eric. Great to have you here today. Hi, thanks for having me on the show. Okay, so Lily and I skipped over our top tips for good reason, because this isn't something we know much about, and we're deferring to you as the expert. So before we go into more detail, Charlotte, let me ask you, what would be your one bit of key advice for anyone interested in using crowdsourcing as part of their reporting? Yeah, I would say uh, reach out to the right crowd. Make sure you know who you're reaching out to. And that one's a bit obvious. So I'll also say to think twice about who you might expose through your crowdsourcing. Great. Really, really good start there. Eric, same question to you. What would your top tip be on this? Yeah, so I think... Um... I, so I'm, I'm based right now in India and have spent most of my career in different parts of the Middle East and North Africa. Um, and, and one of the things that uh, I'm thinking a lot about is sort of the uh, ways to address structural biases and power structures um, in journalism and sort of what voices that privileges and what voices that leaves out. Um, and so I think when talking about crowdsourcing, it's important to think about that as well, about um, you know, how to make sure the, uh, the, the ways that you're using to crowdsource information are not sort of uh, perpetuating those, um, you know, inclusion or exclusion of, of particular groups and voices. Yeah, that's such a good point. That gets us off to a really um, good start. And I'm going to come back and talk about that in more detail a bit, uh, a bit later on. Um, but Charlotte, can you tell, can you start by telling us a bit more about the work you do at Bellingcat and how you've used crowdsourcing in your work? Sure, yeah, so Bellingcat is a research collective, which means that we have about 20 people who are full-time researchers, staff, but we also have this much larger network of people. So we have contributors and collaborators, and then we have volunteers who help us with research or um, are just interested in what we're doing and willing to lend a hand. And then we have, you know, kind of the, the much larger Bellingcat community, which is where the crowdsourcing comes into play. It's the people that we ask for questions or, um, you know, give us technical ideas and tips and things like that. So crowdsourcing really has been at the heart of Bellingcat since the very beginning of when we started. And um, yeah, so, I mean, pretty much everything we do, there is some element there of community, of reaching out to people and having them help us through this research. 
we have really an open methodology style of journalism. So anytime we publish a story, we'll publish the entire methodology for how we reach that conclusion, um, such that you as a journalist, as a, you know, a non-journalist, you could go through the same steps and hopefully come to the same conclusion that we did. We don't use most of the time anonymous sources. And this is also true with techniques and tools, which is kind of the, the you know, the really interesting part of open source research is that online verification is so new um, and there are so many ways that it's changing all the time as the tools we use online are changing. So crowdsourcing ideas for how to combat certain things or um, I don't know, to use a different tool or let's say Facebook, some element of Facebook is down. How do I work around that? Or is there a way to work around it? Uh, but personally, last year I worked on a big crowdsourcing project with uh, forensic architecture, looking at police violence at the Black Lives Matter protests in the United States, where we collected over a thousand incidents of uh, police violence and mapped them all. And in that case, we used crowdsourcing uh, to collect videos that people were sharing, but then we also used the work of volunteers to help us locate them and sort through all those incidents. So it was a, it was a huge part and a lot of what we thought of too um, were the ethical concerns that Eric was bringing up. And I'm sure we'll get into that later. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good example because as a journalist, you can see that you wouldn't be able to collect that level of stories, information, um, you know, as an individual or even as a small team of journalists, you really yeah. need the, um, no, I mean, know, it was, those who were there. Yeah, nationwide, right? So it's like you would have to have someone contributing from almost every single state in the country. So having people on the ground be able to upload videos and as a journalist, rather than having to go to each place yourself, be able to collect them in a way that's safe and ethical for the people who captured the content itself is really interesting and powerful. Yeah, and I guess... Yeah, there's so many sort of ethical considerations to think about. Um, Eric, I just wanted to kind of come on to you um, to find out a bit more about the ghost boat story um, that you did work for for the website Matter. I mean, can you talk a bit more about how you approached um, the outside community for help on that and, and how that aided you in telling the story? Um, yeah, so a quick quick background on the ghost boat story. Um, it was about a, a group of uh, 243 mostly Eritrean refugees who disappeared um, in the Mediterranean Sea in 2014. Um, and I was I was fortunate that at the time, um, Matter Magazine, which no longer exists, um, but they um, they supported me to do uh, essentially a year long investigation to try to figure out what happened. Um, and a big part of that investigation was crowdsourcing information. And there were sort of two parts to it. There was a behind the scenes part to it where I was crowdsourcing information from the community of family members of uh, people who had disappeared. Um, and so they, each of them had sort of a different little mosaic piece about the last time that they communicated with their loved one, about uh, rumors that they heard, phone numbers that they'd talked to people on. Um, and so behind the scenes, we were sort of uh, collecting all of that information from this network of family members. And then we were also, um, at the same time, uh, Matter was published on Medium. Um, and so using Medium, which is a very interactive um, publishing interface, we were also um, sort of soliciting help from readers who were following the story. And so we were asking them to do things like um, comb through data of uh, the, the logs of ship movements in the Mediterranean, which is open source. Um, or in a later phase of the investigation, we had um, collected satellite image 
satellite images of the area of the Mediterranean that we thought the boat had disappeared in, and we're um, you know asking people to help us sort of geolocate uh, um, evidence that could be uh, about what had happened to this boat on those satellite images over a period of time. And um, like like Charlotte said, those are things that you know it it was. It was me and the editor that I was working with at the time, um, Bobby Johnson, who was sort of the the architect behind the approach, um, and uh, that was pretty much our team working on this investigation with some some help from from other people from time to time. But we were the full time uh, people working on it, and there was no way that we could have combed through that amount of data uh, just the two of us without without help from from broader communities. Yeah, and, I, and and was all of that data open source then? Um, so the, the the ship, the the data about ship movements in the Mediterranean is open source. Um, for the satellite images, we had to purchase the satellite images from. There's a there's a number of companies that sort of uh, provide a service um, of where where you're able to purchase satellite imagery. And then there's also uh, a company that allows you to, they have an interface that sort of allows you to upload those images and then geolocate things on them. Um, so that, that part was, was uh, through different services that are provided. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, Charlotte, I mean, um, we've talked there about using open source tools for digital research, and that can be applied in sort of lots of different fields. And this is something that you do training on so can you talk us through um how freelance journalists may be able to make sort of use of tools those kind of tools in their reporting and, and what sort of training might you need because they might be people listening to this might suddenly feel a bit overwhelmed that they don't know kind of what any of that means yeah sure so we do offer training uh open workshops that anybody can join and i think that's a great resource for anybody who wants to get really deeply involved and make this more, um, yeah, make this a part of their career, part of their reporting, but also in the spirit of open source and the spirit of the community, it's not really about the paid trainings. I mean, they're great to attend and I teach them, so I, I recommend you go, but uh, it's also, we have so many free resources and it's really just about immersing yourself in this kind of work and trial and error. I mean, that's like the number one tip I give at a workshop anytime I teach a tool is just play with the tool, like spend a few hours spending time on TweetDeck or spend a few hours like looking at satellite imagery and trying to locate a picture, just, you know, getting used to practicing with these kinds of tools and realizing that you're not really going to mess up, um, especially if you're just doing it for fun. But yeah, I mean, on our website, we have tons of free guides and resources. So if you just want to go take a little dive into there, uh, GIJN also has a ton of resources on their website too for open source reporting. Also the community on Twitter itself um, is very open to collaboration, to questions. So if that's the kind of thing you're into, it's just the, the way I got started too was reaching out to people on Twitter or following along to see what kind of work they were doing and trying to replicate it or you know do some research that spun off of it. So I would just say to get started, um, we do, if you're looking for specific tools, if you feel like you already kind of have a base for this and you want to know where you can find tools, we do have a toolkit. If you just look up Bellingcat Toolkit, it's a really long spreadsheet and it has the tool for literally anything you could possibly want online. So I would recommend checking that out if you're looking for a specific tool. Um, but yeah, and I, I wouldn't say you need training. I would just say that you should get started and see what's out there and, and see what excites you about this, you know? 
Yeah, and one thing I wonder as well is if there are certain stories that kind of lend themselves to this approach more than others. I mean, Eric, uh, is, is crowdsourcing something that you can only use for particular types of stories or when, I wonder as well, is it, it has the data got to be available or are there ways of kind of, you know, getting that information if it's not open source or you can't sort of buy it from a, from a company? Um, yeah, I, I do. I do think that there are certain types of stories that um, lend themselves to, to crowdsourcing. Um, and you know, as as we've said a couple of times, one is when you're trying to comb through large amounts of data that you know uh, whatever team you're working with, or if you're working alone, uh, there's no way that you'd be able to do that on your own. So I think it can be really helpful um, in in doing that. Um, and then the the other thing, which also sort of uh, aligns with um, the the Black Lives Matter protest project that Charlotte mentioned earlier um, is trying to aggregate a large number of testimonies. Um, so, which is which is also something that we did in the Ghost Boat uh, investigation as well. We were trying to construct a timeline of what you know what happened to these this group of people and when was the last time um, you know their their relatives were in contact with them. And so, in order to do that, we needed to talk to as many that. Uh, as many of them as possible. So we've sort of created an, an online form that they could, um, you know, anonymously or uh, securely submit um, their their stories about who they were in touch with, what phone numbers they were in touch with, the names of the smugglers in Libya that um, that their relatives were, um, you know, were uh, in contact with prior to disappearing. Um, and so aggregating all of that information, um, you know. Uh, was was really helpful. So I think if you're if you're working on something where you know you're you're trying to establish a pattern or establish a, a set of facts about um, you know a, a much broader uh, topic or something that in, involves a large number of people, where it's not just one anecdote or two anecdotes that you need for the story, I think crowdsourcing can be really effective to establish sort of a, a foundational set of facts and a broad pattern of um, of actions that that happened. Yeah, I mean, one of the th things that um, when I was thinking about this episode, the sort of the first thing that came to my mind, what I need to know about crowdsourcing was about verification. Um, so I'm going to ask you both about this um, for your kind of advice on this. But Charlotte, I'll start with you. Um, how vital is verification of the information that you're getting from crowdsourcing? And how do you go about doing this when you might be receiving sort of a huge amount of data or responses? Yeah, I think it I, it depends a lot on the scope and goal of your research. I think if you have like research like Eric did, which is, you know, really sensitive and about, you know, people's families and whatnot, you're, you're really going to want to take the time to make sure that you're receiving accurate information. I think for huge crowdsourcing projects where all you're looking to verify is like the the location of where a video took place. Uh, for some people, that's less important to make sure that every location is correct than to aggregate everything that's out there, knowing that maybe some of it is wrong. Um, for instance, the during the Black Lives Matter protests, we weren't the only group that was trying to aggregate everything. There were several other groups that were trying to put all these videos together and several of them um, just essentially had the videos down to a certain city, but didn't try to locate them with exact coordinates because to them, it was just important to archive and group everything together. Uh, at Bellingcat, we 
really verified down to the exact you know street corner that someone was standing on when they took a video and that's what took so long for this project it was like five months of work we had 15 volunteers and it was uh, you know, we just had to go through every single video and try to use clues within it to locate it down to exactly where in Minneapolis this had taken place. And then from there also try to even go down to the time of day that it might have taken place and the exact date by corroborating with other reports of protests from that day. So it was a lot of work um, when you have that many incidents, but I think that's where hopefully working with a big community is vital. And that's why we're launching uh, in a couple months now the the official volunteer networking community at Bellingcat where anybody who's interested can come and help us do this kind of work, locate videos or find corroborating information and use that together for these much larger big data investigations where you still need a lot of like human interaction with the work. Um, I think a lot of people think you can just chug things into an algorithm or I don't know, computer, but th the way we do it still is just like a person spending hours on it. So. It takes time if you don't have a lot of people, um, but I think it's really important to verify. Uh, yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. In Eric, in your experience, what's your experience been with kind of verification and and how important that is in the process? Um, yeah, I think I think there's two things. One, um, one of the benefits of working with crowdsourcing, especially if you're if you're looking at um, information that's sort of gleaned from a large number of people is that patterns emerge from that if you're looking at it like a specific incident. So for example, I, I do a lot of work about migration in the Mediterranean. One of the things that has been sort of a constant recurrence is about um, asylum seekers and migrants being forcibly expelled from the external borders of the EU in places like Greece. Um, and so if you have one testimony or two testimonies about that, uh, people saying this is what happened to me, then, you know, you, each of those testimonies can be open to sort of, okay, so how do you know, is it verified, this person has an agenda, you know, you can sort of uh, um, question each of each of those individual testimonies. But if you have 20 testimonies where um, there's a clear pattern that emerges or 100 testimonies or 1000 testimonies where a clear pattern emerges, of actions that are being taken by a state security force against a particular group of people, then the individual um, specifics of each uh, incident don't necessarily matter as much. It's the overall pattern that you're trying to prove that becomes important. So I think, you know, in, in that sense, crowdsourcing can be its own sort of verification. Um, and then, you know, out of that sort of zooming in, the second thing is if you're, if you then want to use, um, you know, one of those cases or two of those cases as sort of an illustrative example, I think then it becomes important to do sort of your traditional journalistic fact checking to say, okay, this is, you know, this is my, my individual story that's going to be illustrating the broader trend. So I need to make sure that this one checks out in terms of, you know, the date, the time, the, you know, the, the location, all of this kind of stuff. And you just do the sort of um, uh, normal journalistic fact checking that you would do to, to verify what has happened. Yeah. And one thing I also wondered about um, is obviously you've got a community involved and maybe a lot of people giving up their time for free. Um, and obviously, they're interested in the subject and they're maybe sort of committed to the subject matter. But I just wondered kind of how you balance that um, kind of role of the community and, and making sure you're not kind of taking advantage of, of people and, and 
how do you keep them engaged and feeling like um, they're getting something back, I suppose? Um, how do you sort of manage that relationship? Um, Charlotte, if I, if I can come to you first. Sure, yeah. It's a really interesting question. I think uh, I'll address it on two kind of sides. So on the one side, we have like citizen journalists, content creators who are taking videos or images and uploading them online. Sometimes, you know, really under the um, guise of like wanting to tell the story of what's happening, wanting to report on it. And sometimes just, you know, you're a random person walking down the street and you see something crazy and you take a video of it and put it on Twitter, right? So as a researcher or journalist who wants to use that in a story, there's a lot of questions you have to ask yourself. Um, that kind of address the consent of the person who uploaded it. So the idea being, I want to protect them from over amplification or from maybe sharing something that they didn't intend to be seen by a much wider audience, or that might reveal their identity or something about who they are or where they live. But at the same time, still giving them agency and autonomy because they are the ones who chose to upload it. So, you know, it's by completely anonymizing them, um, you also are then taking away their voice. So how do you balance that with these kinds of situations? It's really a case by case or investigation by investigation basis. And for Black Lives Matter, we also, when we started uploading these videos, we realized that, you know, um, Yes, researchers, lawyers, and activists are really interested in what happened at a protest, you know, throughout the course of a day by, you know, block of a street or something. But the other person who's also really interested in that is the law enforcement. Like that's, that's also a perfect tool for them to go look at the map and see, okay, who was where when. And we really didn't want to make this a tool for law enforcement. So you know, we're trying to respect the community of activists that we were trying to uphold and we were using all their videos. Um, so yeah, we ended up, you know, having a lot of questions about how best to do that. And one of the ways that I think is kind of best practice right now for respecting the wishes of whoever uploaded the content is to just have your map or your investigation link out to their tweet or their post. And that way, if they choose to, they can just delete it and then it doesn't link out to anything. Um, but if they want to keep it up and they are then consenting in that way to being on your platform, they can keep it up on their side as well. So that's one way to deal with that. Um, and when we're working with volunteers who are helping us with this project, I think for me, and one of the reasons I wanted to work so deeply with the volunteer network is that I think one of the best ways to give back is to provide feedback to people who are working on this and really make them feel like they have a voice and an impact and they're being credited for their work. Um, you know, I started as a student volunteer and I've thought it was great. Uh, but to me, the most important thing was just like, you know, am I, are people seeing that I'm the one who's working on this? And also, am I actually learning from this experience? Am I receiving feedback that what I'm doing is right or, or wrong? Um, so having that back and forth relationship and not just expecting people to do work for you and then take it and run and do your research, but to include them throughout and at the end of the process too. Yeah, now, Eric, I wonder what your kind of experience of this, particularly if you've got a story where there's a lot of data that, that's got to be trawled through and, and people are going through that as volunteers. How, what's your experience of kind of keeping them engaged in that process? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, sort of like open and clear communication is really important. Just, um, you know, keeping people informed about what's going on. Um, outside of the, you know, the main articles that we published in the ghost boat investigation, we were all also publishing, you know, updates um, specifically for the people who were helping comb through data and, and giving people credit 
you know, if, if somebody um, did something that was particularly helpful or put in, you know, uh, a significant amount of effort into something, we were giving, you know, giving shout outs and credit uh, on, on the platform to, to those people. Um, and then I, I think, I think the other thing, you know, cause it, this was sort of a sensitive question in the ghost boat investigation, because in addition to the broader audience that we were asking for help, uh, you know, we were also crowdsourcing information from the family members of the missing people. And so um, making sure that we were in constant communication with them and that it didn't just feel like we were taking data from them to produce this, you know, hopefully impressive piece of journalism, but that we were invested in finding the answer to the question um, that they wanted to find an answer to, which is what, you know, like what happened to, to these, this group of people that includes, you know, our relatives and the people that we love, um, you know, it was, so it was important to, to keep that communication open and sort of go beyond what, what was just published or what was just um, sort of uh, utilitarian to the investigation and the production of journalism, but to really make sure that like, you know, on a, on a human person to person level, um, I was uh, invested in this story, not just as, you know, an interesting project that I was working on, but as something that also um, was, was deeply meaningful um, and important for me to be working on. So I think, I think that's another uh, key element as well. Yeah, we've we've kind of talked about how we've got some kind of really large legacy media organisations increasingly using crowdsourcing and then smaller independent websites as well. Um, I guess I'm interested in what you think the role of the freelance journalist is in crowdsourcing and how freelancers can perhaps get um, more involved in these kind of investigations if they're interested. Um, Charlotte, I'll, I'll ask you first. Yeah, that's a good question. I'm trying to I'm trying to think about a good answer. Um, I mean, it's like it depends on how big of an investigation you're doing, right? I think um, obviously, like a bigger investigation, kind of launching on that and on your own can be pretty daunting. So, um, I don't know. I would say getting involved with other people who might be interested in the same topic or working as a group. Um, but mostly I think this is true of crowdsourcing, but really any investigation, but especially with crowdsourcing when you're using people's information, make sure you really have an investigation plan and you really have an idea of what, it, what kind of information you're looking for and how you wanna go about that and how you're going to protect everybody involved throughout the process. I think it's just, you know, I, I mean, I don't really have to say this, but it, it would be like irresponsible journalism to just launch out and send like a million surveys to people and then have no idea what you're going to do with that. So uh, making a plan for the information instead of just casting a wide net, I think really, uh, again, choosing the right crowd, finding the niche of people that you think are going to help you come to an answer to the, your research question. And then, um, yeah, taking detailed steps to get there would be my tip. I yes, I mean, that's it's a really good answer because that fits in really nicely with our um, previous episode in this series on collaborative journalism and kind of finding those networks of mm. um, other freelancers who might be interested in similar topics to you. This kind of fits quite nicely. Um, I mean, Eric, have you got any advice on that from a freelance point of view of either what you need to know or how to kind of get more involved in, in crowdsourcing if you're interested? Um, yeah, I get, I mean, I guess mine is sort of thinking of it practically from, you know, from, from a freelance perspective where, 
you know, if, if my bread and butter is coming from my ability to produce work that's getting published, um, that, you know, sort of the most important thing to make a crowd sourcing investigation or sort of incorporate that into what I'm doing sustainable is to have some sort of institutional backing for it because the process can take a long time. Um, you know, you're not a hundred percent sure what you're going to get out of it necessarily, even if you have that investigation plan in place. So if you're doing all of that work upfront without sort of any commission or guarantee of an outcome, I mean, if you can do it, uh, that's great, more power to you, but at least in terms of, you know, the calculations that I've always um, found myself making in my own career, you know, having some sort of institutional backing, having some sort of commitment that, okay, you know, we're going to support you through the process of this and, you know, you're going to be able to pay your rent and put food on your table um, while you're doing it is, you know, that that's an important uh, sort of entry point to, to be able to do it. So, you know, I think there, there are people out there who, you know, uh, are really savvy at doing this kind of stuff and setting it up and, and, you know, being able to incorporate it into multiple other things that they're doing. But um, for me to be able to sort of have a, the myopic focus that an intensive investigation requires, um, I would definitely need some sort of institutional backing or some, you know, some support in, in order to do it. And how would you go about that? Would you would you pitch an idea for kind of an investigation using crowdsourcing or is it would, would a team of you get together and and kind of approach an organization or would the organization come to you i'm just i'm just wondering how that process might work um yeah so i think i think there's there's a couple of ways it could work one you could you could pitch a project idea that um that involves crowdsourcing or that has some potential for crowdsourcing. Um, and, you know, as, as you mentioned, sort of at the beginning of the show, there's, there's a lot of outlets that are looking to do projects that involve crowdsourcing because it's interactive, it's innovative, it's making use of sort of all of the, the digital tools and technologies that are, um, you know, available and is a really good way to, you know, expand and engage and keep audiences. Um, so I think, you know, there could be interest in that if you have a good topic and you bring a project idea somewhere particularly to you know a place that is um you know taking sort of a, an innovative approach to the journalism that they do i think that there definitely could be an appetite for that um you know and then there's there's also all sorts of all sorts of grants out there reporting grants um, which is not something that i have uh, too much experience with personally um but you know, I think I think another um, avenue that you could go is uh, to apply for grants. And again, I think because there's interest in digital journalism and um, sort of the uh, multimedia uh, approach to storytelling, uh, which I think crowdsourcing can can fall into nicely, um, there there could very well be you know interest in people who are are wanting to support this kind of work. Yeah, that's that's really encouraging, and I think anyone like you say, anyone who's kind of interested in it, um, yeah, needs to kind of think about how they're gonna, how they're gonna turn it into something that is sustainable for them. Um, and I think both of you have given some great advice and some great resources that we'll include in our show notes. I think we're gonna move on now to our listener dilemma of the week. So this is a section of the podcast where we put a question from one of our listeners 
um, to our guests and we try to fix a problem they've been having or, or just give our thoughts. Yeah, so this week, um, Matthew Davidson in our Facebook community asks, um, I'm curious about how to reuse content. Specifically, if I write something for my blog, can I then pitch it as a paid article somewhere? Or should I keep things I want to pitch private? So, I mean, Lily, you are the queen of writing a million articles on the same topic for different publications with mm. kind of new angles and new ideas. So I'm going to go straight to you on this because <laughs> you're going to give us your secrets of how to get um, a million slices of that pie. Yes, yes, I do repurpose quite a bit of content for different publications. Um, I mean, I would say it, it does depend on the story, but if you have a blog, um, brilliant, but you haven't got an audience like a publication has an audience. So chances are um, most people have not seen that information or read that story. So I think you probably would be okay pitching something that's on your blog um, to a publication. Obviously, you've got to have a strong news angle. You've got to be able to, you know, uh, refer to who your sources are going to be, um, what's kind of going to back up this story um but I think just because it's on a blog doesn't mean you can't pitch it somewhere else because you're pitching to an entirely different audience so I, I wouldn't let that put you off would kind of be my my advice on that one yeah I mean in the pitching process you are going to be thinking about um targeting that publication so what kind of stories are they going to be interested in um you know, what kind of top line, what kind of headline might, um, you know, an editor for that publication uh, might, you know, might attract their attention. I think one thing that I would say about blogs is I would think what is the purpose of your blog? Because if you're spending all the time doing your blog, that's not probably generating you any income. Why not just pitch all that stuff straight away and pitch it to multiple publications? Um, Eric, do you have any thoughts on this for our listener? Uh, yeah, so I'm, I guess I'm going to answer this from the perspective of a freelance editor, because um, I, you know, I edit migration articles for the New Humanitarian, which is an online news website that um, focuses on on reporting from, uh, you know, humanitarian on humanitarian crises around the world. Um, and for us, we're we're sort of a, a small niche publication with a specific audience. So for us to publish something that's already been published somewhere else we we really need value added in in the stories that we're going to put on our website because people aren't coming to us to see the same thing that they're seeing in other places they're coming to us for you know original unique content um so you know if if it's something that's already published on your blog um or anywhere else we would need to see sort of um substantial original and new uh, information and approach taken in the piece to to have it be something that we would be interested in. Um, and I think sort of like a, a broader extrapolation of that is know the outlets that you're pitching to, because some places um, would be happy to, you know, republish something or republish something that's similar to some other place, you know, places that are uh, publishing a lot of content about you know, all sorts of things, and they just want to sort of put a pin in something and so say, okay, yeah, we've covered this, then, you know, you can have sort of an iterate, iterative um, article that a similar version appears somewhere else. But uh, if you're looking at more niche publications, um, then, you know, it, it 
really most of the time has to be original content. Absolutely. Charlotte, have you got anything? I think we've probably ticked lots of boxes there, but have you got anything to add to uh, Eric's advice? Not really. I mean, I've, I'm not an editor and I don't think I've ever pitched an article. So I'm pretty much a, a horrible person to ask, but um, I think, I mean, we're, I could just speak from the perspective of Bell and Cat and the kinds of articles we publish when we do publish from outside contributors. And um, it, yeah, we focus on a lot of niche topics. Like we have a series on QAnon kind of really taking a deep dive into that for people who are interested. And um, yeah, for us, it's much more so about like the unique, uh, uniqueness of the topic or the methodology you used and I don't think it matters so much that you posted it somewhere else as long as it's not like you know already a huge story somewhere else but um, yeah it, we also kind of I think live in this space of wanting to give people who have this really like niche intense interest in something uh, a place to publish to a wider audience so I don't think it matters as much for us but I'm also not our editor so I don't really know. <laughs> Yeah, I think with the like with a lot of things, it's the answer is kind of it depends. It very much depends on on what the story is and where you're pitching it to. Um, so, I hope that's helped, Matthew. Even if it's not a very uh, clear cut answer. Yes. No. I think. I mean. I think it does. We always we always end up with the phrase "it depends" at the end of our listener dilemma of the week. So that's uh, <laughs> that's par for the course. So time to bring this episode to a close. That was really fascinating. Thanks so much to Charlotte and Eric for coming on and sharing their, your expertise on this topic. Yeah, it's been really great. I've learned loads and you mentioned lots of great resources. So we will add them to our show notes. Um, if any of our listeners want to find out more about us, then uh, head over to freelancingforjournalists.com. Yep, you can follow us on Twitter as well, where we are at Freelancing4. Um, and individually, I'm at Emma Journo. And I'm at Lily Cantor. Um, we mentioned our Freelancing for Journalists Facebook community there. If you haven't joined already, head over there. We have about 4,500 members on there now, so you'll get lots of advice if you have any questions. Um, and you can find us on Instagram as well. And if you'd like to give us a thumbs up or review on the podcast, then we'd love to hear your feedback as it really helps to spread the word. Uh, our producer for this series is Anthony Keats, so thanks to him for sorting out any edits. And also massive thanks to our research assistant, Helen Quinn. And this is the last episode of Series 5, but we will be back soon in the autumn with another series. And next week, we also have a bonus episode where Emma and I give each other an appraisal. We do, we do. So bye for now, everyone. Goodbye.